Now we're recording. All right. So good morning, everybody. Good morning, Father. Nice to have you all here. Um, we are going to study, as we just mentioned, the book of Africa, the book of the Revelation. Anybody know what the official title of the book is? You might see it on your cover page of the book. Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's another word, the apocalypse. Now, when you hear apocalypse, what do you think of? The end. The end. What else do you think of? Movies. If something is apocalyptic, what does that generally bring up? Violent. Violent end for something. Scary. Destruction. Supernatural. So, the apocalypse, we often associate with things that are very negative and destructive. And we're going to see, before we're done, a lot of negative and a lot of destruction. Don't get me wrong. It's not, this isn't just a happy book. But in terms of the message, it's a very joyful book because the word apocalypse means the revelation, but in a very interesting way. Um, anybody know what the cover that we put over, bless you, the cover over the chalice that we use as a cloth when you come up to communion? Everybody know what the word of that is in Greek? That's the kalima, the cover. C-O-V-E-R. <laughs> kalima, K? That's what you get when you sit at the very end of the table. K-A-L-I-M-A. -A. Kalima. Okay? So apocalypse comes from apo from covering. So it's the uncovering. So this is not a book that a lot of people misunderstand as covering over truth and hiding it. We are going to uncover truth and meaning. Okay? Um, I'm going to encourage you, as I always do, that when I ask a question, Try your best not to guess, and it's going to be even harder when I ask you questions about this book because if you've read it before, and particularly if you've gone through a form of a study, not that every other study is wrong, I'm not saying that, but so many studies have the setting of the book wrong, have the message of the book wrong, that when they get to interpret parts of the book, they get it wrong. So when I ask you, what do you think that means, just as I've done with every other book, where do I want you to look for the answer? In the book. <laughs> okay, so we're going to look at the verse, we're going to look at the verse behind it, we're going to think of the theme of the whole book, and I'm going to say, what do you think that means? <clears throat> we're going to be tempted to go to apocalyptic stuff in terms of other ideas we've had about the book, being a book of destruction and the end. Hello, welcome. Um, but we want to get back to it being uncovering. Now, what is it uncovering? What is this book uncovering? Now, you don't know the particular um, what it's uncovering, but in general, because of where we're finding this book, the book of Revelation, what is it going to uncover in one way or another? That's a good guess, but in general, if it's in the Bible, what is it? In general, it's God, truth. It's going to be uncovering some level of the truth, some level of message that God wants to give us. So the entire book of the Bible, and for us as Orthodox Christians, that's the entire New Testament beginning from Genesis, with other books in the Old Testament that some other Christians don't recognize. 
until the book of Revelation. So this is the last chapter in our Bible, as it is for everybody else, but our Bible is a bit different. But what is our Bible? What, what do we see the Bible as a whole as? What is it? Yeah, it's lesson and it's instruction. That's a, I'm glad you said instruction there. <clears throat> it is not primarily a book of inspiration, although it's inspirational. It's not primarily a book of history, although it has history to it. It is a book of instruction. It's a book that once we close it, we don't go, oh, isn't that nice? We go, oh, now I know what to do. Okay, so the Bible is a book of instruction. So we're going to be looking at what instruction is uncovered. If we don't think about what's the instruction, we're going to misinterpret. If it's just like, oh, this sounds really like a neat prediction about this exciting, scary time, that's not instructional, unless you need to know that, what that setting looks like, so that you can know what to do. Okay, so it's instruction. It's instruction on how to do what? What's the Bible tell us in general what to do? How to live our lives faithfully. How to maintain our life in this world with our trust in God. So that as we go through this life, we understand from the beginnings of creation to what we're going to hear about the end of where it's all headed. We want to live our life as part of that story, trusting in God and specifically living according to his instruction. Okay. Who's the message from? Who's the message of the Bible from? It's from the Lord. It's from the Lord. So everything we're going to get from Revelation, just like every other piece of Scripture, is a message from God. I know it sounds obvious, so obviously we might have missed it. But when you look, when people look at this book and try to figure out what it's saying about some future time, and not saying, what is God, who is our loving God, trying to tell us in his love for us, in his instruction to us, out of his love for us, then we're going to misunderstand it. So getting the whole setting um, is, is important in terms of where is it? What is it? Because it's scripture, what is it? It's instruction. It's instruction from God who loves us and instruction on how to be faithful to him in order to do what? This is the final question of our introduction in terms of general purpose. What does God want for us? That's what he wants from us in order to do what? What's God's ultimate desire for us? To save us. God wants us to be saved. Ultimately, he wants us to be saved. If we glorify him, I'm sure he appreciates it. But ultimately, his, his purpose, everything he does, is for us. So at Christmas, we said, May he who is lain in a manger, who was born in a cave, lain in a manger for us and for our salvation, salvation Christ our true God, at Theophany, which we're still celebrating, we said, may he who is baptized, who deigned be baptized by John of the Jordan for us and for our salvation. So everything he does is for us and for our salvation. And this book does not exclude it. So if we're going to understand it, in the little parts of it, we've got to understand where it is in the whole gamut of, of Holy Scripture, which is all about a message from God who loves us, giving us instruction, on how to be faithful to him 
in order to receive the salvation that he gives. Okay, any questions on that? Okay. Um, the fact that it's a revelation tells us that what it's talking about and what it's going to reveal to us, because this is not a book of hiding, it's a book of revealing, others don't understand it. Until you read the book and understand what it's trying to say to you, if you don't do that, you're not uncovering. So when we put the kalima over the chalice, you can't see what's in the chalice. It, this is the book of the uncovering, which means as much as this provides the clarity, not the confusion, the clarity, not understanding it leaves you in confusion. A lot of people say, well, I read it, I get confused. And we're not going to explain everything because I don't, and I can't, I don't think anybody can explain everything in the book and say definitively, this is what it's saying. And we'll get into that and why that is in a few minutes. Um, but I think the main point I want to say is that we're going to be gaining clarity, not gaining more confusion, because it's written to us to get clarity, to share the message with us. Um, uh, let's see, anything else on that? I think that's it for that. Okay. Let's talk about the type of literature it is. In the, in the Bible, there are different kinds of literature, right? What kinds of literature do we find in the Bible? I'll give you one example. We have poetry. Where's an example of poetry in the Bible? The Psalms. So our last study was on Psalms. Those were all poems. They were hymns, they were sung, but they were sung poems. So we have poetry. What other genres of literature do we have in the Bible? History. Some history, right? Narrative. Narrative. Give me an example of narrative. Um, the story of David and Goliath. Okay. Because it has a beginning, uh, a climax, and mm -hmm. an end. Yeah, it's telling the story. Book of Acts. Yeah, the Book of Acts, good example of narrative. Welcome, Alan. Take that. Do me a favor. Take that magnet on the door, and slide it onto the the opening. Sorry. If you put it over the opening, that'll keep the door from being locked. In in the apocalyptic times we live in, people are scared. So what do we have? We have all these safety procedures. There you go. No. No, but we will, and we'll get into this in a few minutes. There is a, it's written, in code is too strong to say, it's written with symbolism which symbolism always gives us understanding. People think, well, it's symbolic. I'm gonna be confused or I can't figure it out. No. If you see a stop sign, even if you can't read the words on it, what do you do? You stop. Why? Because you bring together, a sign is a symbol. It brings together, a symbol, if you look at the Greek, it means it stands together. Sim, like symphony. Sim is symphony, is sound together. A symbol is what stands together. What stands together in a symbol, like that stop sign, is the symbol, the color, the shape, with the action. It brings those two things together. So it doesn't represent it as a separate thing. It brings it together. So when he was writing this, when did he write this? This is St. John, the Apostle John, 
writing it in his probably old age, probably 40, 50, 60 years after Christ has ascended. Was he writing it with the idea of the current people or was he thinking mm. ahead to us? Both. And we'll get into that. We'll get into why, why we know it's both. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll get into the setting in a minute too. Yeah. That's what you're about, yeah. Of course. <laughs> Just you two. <laughs> All right, so we've had narrative, um, we've had poetry. Um, this kind of literature is doesn't really fit in any one category. And by the way, all those other categories, like narrative, also has other kinds of literature. You could read into the story of David and Goliath both the narrative of what happened and allegory into what, again, God is trying to tell us in his instruction in the book. In, in, a, in the book of Revelation, you have a type of literature that is not a common type that we read in the Bible, but it's not the only example of it. And it's called apocalyptic literature. It's literature that um, is about revelation, about uncovering of truth. Um, and whether you say it coincidentally or not coincidentally, this type of literature is used when people are fearing the end or when people are fearing um, lots of danger and culmination of problems and you know not just things are bad but this could be the end that's when apocalyptic literature ends up being used more often um, and so understanding that it's not written as a narrative it is written as a narrative, but in the style of, of apocalyptic literature. Um, now, what are some of the qualities of that? Um, I mentioned one, that it's typically written in times of crises, and typically it's trying to show that in spite of what you see, which looks hopeless, there is hope that can't be seen unless you uncover the truth, then you're going to see it. And that's probably the theme we're going to go back to more and more again throughout the book. The other theme is you see what you see, but it's not what it looks like. Okay. So that one category, one, one quality of apocalyptic literature is that it's, it's written in times of crisis. Um, not just minimal crisis, the threat of death. That's the ultimate crisis, the threat of death, mass death on a mass level. Um, and the idea of how to find hope in what looks like a hopeless situation. Related to that, apocalyptic literature, welcome, is always a reframing of what victory is. Okay? So, for example, in a few chapters, um, we're going to find this figure of the wounded lamb, or the lamb with the mortal wound. Okay? Where is he seated? He's on the throne. So already you have an example of how does victory get reframed. Now, how do we normally define victory in a worldly sense? What qualities do you give to a victor? The winner. The winner. The most power. Strength. Defeating others. Conquering. All those things are how victory gets defined. Apocalyptic literature is going to reframe what victory looks like. And I'll give away the ending from now. 
it's going to reframe what does it look like to be killed for one's faith, which the world would see as the ultimate defeat. You die for your faith, we got rid of you. Whoever killed you won. What the book is going to teach us is that that's actually the ultimate victory. So it's reframing it. It's saying, again, you look at that person dying, it looks like they were conquered by all this power that couldn't be resisted. But here's what really happened as it gets uncovered for us. Okay? Um, it is symbolic. Apocalyptic literature is always symbolic. And again, for us Orthodox, that doesn't mean that something stands in for something else. If you talk to some Protestants, not all, but some would say that the Eucharist is symbolic, that the bread and wine represent, they stand in for, they somehow are instead of, or somehow related to the body and blood of Christ. We see the bread and wine in the Eucharist as symbolic meaning it brings together. You have bread and wine, which bring together, remember, symbol, stand with the body and blood of Christ. So in this context, we're going to see a lot of symbols. We're going to talk about numbers in a few minutes and other kind of symbols. They don't represent in a setting apart, a, a separating way. They bring together. Does that make sense in symbolism? Any questions on that? Okay. Um, apocalyptic literature is almost always dualistic. Very clear. It's, there's not a lot of gray because you're, you're talking to people who think things are really bad. The message is actually things are really good. And so because of that, there's not a lot of gray. It's this is what it looks like. This is what it is. This is good. This is bad. So there's a lot of what we call dualistic themes. So it's one or the other, it's very black and white. Um, and lastly, the, the purpose, I've already mentioned this to you, but the purpose of a, apocalyptic literature is always to comfort. All right, you're writing to people who are in, under threat of death in a, in a mass way, they're under some kind of power that looks invincible. And the purpose is, again, not to scare. When people read this, they're oh, I get scared when I read Revelation. Well, if you get scared when you read it, you're not getting the message. Why? Because it's a message of comfort. Why would somebody, can you imagine how cruel it would be that somebody's in this terrible situation and you send them a letter to scare them more? This is comfort. This is, this is a way of saying, because of the things we've already mentioned, reframing victory, um, all everything else, the idea is that when somebody reads this, they're comforted and they're more ready to do what we said about the scripture does in general, which is to equip you, instruct you on how to live that faithful life to receive the salvation God wants to give you. The only difference is that apocalyptic literature does this at a time when it's really going to be tough, or at least it's going to appear really tough. Again, it's the whole reframing things and go on. Okay, if you want to look at other examples of apocalyptic literature in the Bible, you could look at the Book of Daniel. That was written. Most scholars would agree that it was written um, after the time that it's talking about, but it reframes the captivity of the people in, in of Israel who are taken captivity by the Babylonians, and reframes it using the the 
the structure of apocalyptic literature to show that even though the people looked like they were being conquered, it was really God was in control and he was doing what he was doing for them and for their salvation. So as a reframe, that's one example. Um, the Gospels, um, Matthew 24 is, if you want to just flip that really quick, you can kind of see um, what I'm talking about. It's where Jesus talks about uh, the end of the world. Chapter 24? Yeah. Verse. We'll just glance at the chapter. I'm not going to read it all. Just to glance at it. Um, it starts out with Jesus leaving the temple and the disciples, as they're leaving, then they go up and they see, uh, you know, the whole Temple Mount and all the, the area. And it says, and Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. That's how the, the, the chapter starts. Um, then the disciples ask, when will these things be? And look at verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. So you're, you're going to hear, if you look back and you go back later on and read the whole chapter, you'll go, wow, this sounds like a lot of the stuff we're reading in Revelation. It is. Um, it's not coincidental. Um, it's also where, if I can find it. Go to... Go to verse 38. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. All right, those four verses spawned a whole series of ways of interpreting the Revelation, the book of Revelation, that I don't know how many churches were born out of the divisions that came out of people uh, interpreting what those verses meant. Does this mean that there's a pre there's a thousand year reign of christ and this happens before this rapture that people imagine this talks about it happens before it happens during it happens after there's no rapture i mean people have debated this for a couple hundred years not as long as you think by the way this is not an ancient uh deliberation this is not something that until modern times really was really sort of this idea of the rapture and people being taken out and all this kind of thing but if you look at go back to those verses i'm, I'm reading this for a specific reason Look at verse 38 and 39, and then look at verse 42. What are these verses about? We have to be ready at all times and we can't come up with the date. Right. So we're not going to know when things are going to happen. Right. right. That's not our 
Yeah, and he uses Noah and the Ark as an example of what? Right. And then when they figured it out, when did they figure it out? When Noah entered the Ark. <laughs> okay. So the message is be prepared. Now, mind you, this is only four verses of the entire Gospel of Matthew. Um, but his whole, the whole Gospel of Matthew was instruction. And when we went to the to that book, remember there were the the five different sermons. One was the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the new giving of the law, and all that. And be ready for it because you don't know when it's coming. And gladly the Left Behind series, you know, yeah. videos, movies, or whatever yep. came out of these verses. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, there's several references, many references to you don't know the time or the place. Right. My babysitter, when we were growing up, she would not, we would go, or the Abraham kids would go to the movies on Saturday or Sunday afternoon for 25 cents. And um, she would, she didn't believe in going to the movie because she didn't want to be caught in the theater. When <laughs> the rapture came. came. Right. So yep. We had a girl in our University of Christian Fellowship at college who took quick showers because she didn't want to be in the shower when the Lord came back. We're all strange, aren't we? Well, I mean, I'll tell you what I think is, is, is positive about that. Being aware that this could come at any time and being ready. Uh, the, the down part was when people took the middle verses, took them out of the meaning that was obvious at the beginning and end of that little section, and took it as, and then started developing all kinds of ideas around it. We'll get back to that idea. But I wanted just to go back, the idea of this apocalyptic literature is, it's warning you, be careful, because this time's gonna come and most people aren't gonna recognize it, and you wanna be ready. By the way, um, Matthew 25 is one that we're all pretty familiar with because we hear these gospel readings, the parts that are in it, um, regularly on Sundays. So the first section of, of Matthew 25 is the parable of the ten virgins, five wives, five foolish. Then it gets to the stewards. One gets five, one gets two, one gets one talent. Master goes away, then he comes back, so we're familiar with that. And then the last one we hear every year on Judgment Sunday um, Son of Man comes, he gathers all the nations like, like a, um, a shepherd gathers the sheep and divides the sheep from the goats. Those three sections are Matthew 25. Okay? But when you look at it in context of Matthew 24, it makes even more sense. Get ready. All these are about being prepared, and I'm going to tell you ahead of time what's going to come and why. It comes right after Matthew 24, which is, again, be prepared. Something's coming. Yes, it's going to be awful. All these things are going to happen, but it's part of, of God's victory. Yeah. It also speaks to the dualism of the apocryphal literature because uh, with the two standing in, or one stand, two in standing in the field, one is taken to paradise and one is left for eternal judgment, uh, it, it implies. Uh, or like any of the other examples here, there are those who are against God or those right. who do not get it, who do not care for God. And those that do, and the dualism is represented. Exactly. Yep. Very good. <coughs> okay. Let's go on with a couple other notes of introduction. Um, the structure of apocalyptic, 
apocalyptic literature, I have trouble saying that word, um, is similar to other scripture in that all of scripture um, operates in the sense that God reveals something to someone, and then usually that person writes down what they received. So, for example, the gospel, um, the gospel of John, John knew Christ, and so he writes down his gospel from what he received from Christ. Revelation and other apocalyptic literature works a little bit differently in that often you have a couple steps in between. Um, you have God, who is the source of all the knowledge. Then often you have a messenger who brings that message to a seer or the writer, often the writer, who writes the text. Okay? In this case, we're going to have an angel come to John and bring him a message. And then John writes the message, and then we get his text. So you got, in a sense, four steps from the origin to us. What do we have access to? The text, the writing. Okay? And that's really important because if you assume you have direct access to anyone else, now you're not reading the text. You're reading something into the text that is not there necessarily. You might be right, but you could be wrong. And what's the purpose of text? This is the message. We don't need to go beyond this because this is the message that came to the person that God wanted the messenger to give it to in order for him to give it to us. So it's enough to see here. In other words, what we get out of this is what we get out of this. What we don't get out of this is not for us to guess, to interpret, to stretch. We want to get out of it because this is what's given to us. We weren't the seer. We weren't John who had the vision in this case. Uh, we're not the messenger. We're not God. We're the ones who have been blessed to read the text. And so it's really important that when we look at it, we, we don't go beyond this. Now, we might refer to other things because in the style and in the context, we may go, oh, this is like when Christ said this. That's fine. We can bring that in as a connection. But we don't want to, if we, if we add in things that aren't there because we think they're there, we're just going to bring confusion. And again, this is revelation. One of the reasons why people get more confused is they bring things to that. Okay. Any questions on that? Yeah. So you're saying too much interpretation. Correct. So all we're going to try to do is I'm going to try to give you, as I'm doing now in terms of the introduction, I want to give you some information that the original hearers or readers would have known. That's the only really, to me, the only valuable thing, and one of my professors in seminary would make this point. He would say, even though he wrote a lot of books in the Old Testament, don't read books in the Old Testament, about the Old Testament, read the Old Testament. And his point was, all that we need to do as teachers is help a audience at a certain place in time understand what would have been easily understood by those that received it first. And as an example, I'll use this. Um, few of us understand what it means to be a shepherd in biblical times. Most of us don't understand what it means to be a shepherd in general. 
let alone a shepherd in business. Now, if you go to shepherd in, in modern day times, you talk about perhaps a factory and a mega farm and machinery and automation. And, right? So in other words, to understand when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, we have to know what was a shepherd? How did they work? To learn, as I did, and I thought, what a great image, that a shepherd, often they didn't work in pens. It takes a lot of work and money to build a pen. You want to keep your sheep somewhere. You find some place that has a natural enclosure, like a cave, or a place where there's just a small opening. And then what do you do? When you want to sleep, you lay down in the opening so the sheep can't get out. So when Christ says, I am the door, they would have heard very clearly, well, of course, he said he's a good shepherd. Now he's saying he's the door. We get it. We don't think, when he says, I'm the door, we think this. We don't think the shepherd laying down in the opening of the cave to say that he's the one that both keeps the sheep in where it's safe and keeps the wolves out. So when we look at the Bible, we want to understand as best we can what would be known by the original hearers. That's it. We don't need to guess and say, well, it sounds like this was, you know, fulfilled at a certain time. And no, we want to know what people in John's time would have known. And then we can take from that to understand what that means for us today. Well, Christ really wasn't a shepherd of sheep. Not literally, but he used the imagery, right. <coughs> but he used that imagery. So if we don't understand, right, if we don't understand what a shepherd meant, what he did, then we're going to get his message wrong. So we just understand it in, in, in a sense, it's not theology. It's what was life like in the first century if you were a shepherd. That's what we want to, when we study it, that's, in other words, I'm, I'm going to bring that sort of outside information in. I'm not going to bring in other, other than that, because everything other than that, that we need, where is it? It's already here. This wasn't written as, a lot of people misinterpret, as a code to people who had to break the code. Again, this is the uncovering. So what we're going to, what the code we're going to break is, are the things that those people wouldn't have been, they didn't need to, they didn't need code, they understood it, right? Always, <laughs> always. But sheep don't complicate things. No. Right, right. So when Christ says, I'm the shepherd and you're the sheep, we who don't know sheep very well go, well, I don't know what that means. But people who've been around sheep and goats would go, well, I, I get it. Goats are nasty. They bite each other. They fight. Uh, they use their horns against each other. Sheep just sort of go along and... And what did Christ say? Or actually, what did John say about Christ? John said, behold, the Lamb of God. So Christ, the image of Christ in the Bible, is of a lamb. Not just a sheep, but a lamb. By you saying about the cave and the shepherd's sheep, it makes perfect sense. Right. But we don't, 21st century people don't always understand that. So I'm going to provide some background. Right. So I'm going to provide some, as we go through this, I'm going to provide some background, not of theological sense, but of local, it would have been contemporary for them. Yeah. They tell the story of the teacher who asked her a sixth grade math class. She said, if you had, this one little boy, she said, if you have 20 sheep in a field and one gets out, how many do you have left? He said, none. 
she said, you don't understand much about math. He says, you don't understand much about sheep. <laughs> they always follow yeah. each other. If one gets up, they're all going, you know. Well, uh, and it was it was out in Badlands, and there was a, a small pen with sheep in them. And the funniest thing was that there was a little hole in the in the fence here, and they all went out here, and then they, there was another one here, and then they would run back in the pen. So they were going in circles Aww. in and out of the pen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <That> sheep. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's see. Let's talk about numbers for a minute because we're going to hit numbers from the very beginning. Let's talk about um, some numbers a little bit. Um, the number two. Any ideas of why the number two is significant in the Bible? And by the way, when I say in the Bible, I'm going to give you some examples from the Bible, but they're never exclusively to the Bible because the Bible, again, isn't separate truth. So I'm going to give you when we talk about what they mean, let's use examples in the Bible, then we'll talk about how it's true in general. Okay. Um, yeah, not talked about much in the Bible itself, but yeah, that's how, that's how we understand. Um, why did Jesus send out the apostles by twos, you think? Why is two better than one in that kind of situation? They look out for each other. So it's support, yeah. Say more about that. I didn't hear what you said. I just said it, it establishes the testimony of something that was heard. If it was heard by just one person, yeah. it's not as yeah. viable. <laughs> but if, you, if it's heard by two. Have any of you seen, and I'm not going to talk about politics, but have you seen this couple on Fox News, Diamond and Silk? No. <laughs> no. You've seen them? Okay. You see that, all right. So there's two women, and the one talks, and the other one just sits there and goes, uh-huh, mm-hmm, that's right, that's right. I always think of this whole idea of establishing the witness, too. Having a second person there, like you said, establishes the witness. It, when, when um, I think it's, it's Matthew 12, maybe, when Jesus is talking about when there's trouble in the community, how do you handle it? Number one, you go to the person and you say to them nicely what you're trying to say. If, you, if that doesn't work, you take another with you to establish. In other words, showing that it's not just personal, there's agreement here. And then you go to the community. So anyway, number two often is a, a verification of the truth or of the message. It's, it's, it's somebody to, to verify that this is, this is, this is true. Um, three, and don't just think in terms of the Trinity in three. That's what we often think of three. Um, and obviously, we do believe in the Trinity. Uh, when you think of three, why is three better than two? Or why, how is it different? How is, it, how is three used differently than two? Yeah, so there's a strength. Yeah. Stability, yeah. How do you start a race? On your mark, get set, go. On your mark, get set, go. Why can't you just say on your marks, go? Doesn't work. 
right? There's something missing, right? So there's a completeness in three. Obviously, we see it in the Trinity, but there's a completeness in three that's not always easy to identify, but it's an important, um, it's an important unity. Um, it's a way to, to solve problems by bringing that strength and stability. Um, parents. And another question might be, why isn't there a fourth? If we had the father first, mm -hmm. and then we had the son, and the Holy Spirit, why isn't there something else? Yeah, and, and there is a, a completeness in three that four doesn't fit into. We'll get into four in a second. We'll see what four does fit. But, good. I was thinking of the three men in the fire, and the fourth one was Christ. Yeah, so four, there is a, it's sort of an extra kind of, but there's always that three unity. Parents, when you've been talking to your kids and they're not listening, what do you say? I've told you once. You don't say, I told you once and I told you twice. We don't say that, right? I told you once, I told you, I told you three times. You don't go, I told you once, I told you twice, I told you four times. There is a unity, there is a completeness to three, right? That's why I want to say it, because we all do the same, they're all laughing, because we've all done the same thing. There's a completeness and a, a um, my professor called it, indeedness to three. And like, yeah, a, come on, I told you, I told, I told you three times already. So there's, there's, when we have three, think about a, a completion, um, think about, which is not always identified, like, you, why is three complete in that sense. Why don't we say, I told you four times, we stop at three. There's something that is innate in us that says three should be enough. Three is enough. We have a stool and it has three legs. Three right. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. So three is completeness. Um, not always identifiably why, but three, but, but definitely three. It's, it's, it's now established. You could say, well, you had two, you had one and you had the witness, which is true. But when you've got three, it's like, okay, you know, game, game, set, match. Yeah. Transfiguration. Game, set, match, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Transfiguration. That's one of the things that was in the uh, explanation of the transfiguration. Why did Jesus take only three, Peter, James, and John, up on the Mount of Transfiguration? Because later, when they would give testimony, the testimony of two in a Jewish court was sufficient to convict. Mm -hmm. The testimony of three was ironclad. Nobody could contradict it. There them. you go. There you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you, if, if somebody rises on the second day, you might say, well, gee, maybe he was still alive or, you know, but after on the third day, he, he was dead. And then you take Lazarus, dead four days. Now, really let's go into four. Not just mostly. Yeah. Really four. <laughs> four. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. In fact, it becomes his title. When we, we refer to him, we say Lazarus of the four days. Oh. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, because it was the matter that he wanted it to be shown that he was the Lord over life and death, and that Lazarus had not just, you know, had gone into a coma, or right. he was dead for so long that he began to give an odor. 
Right. And his mm -hmm. sister says, if you move that stone, he's going to, there's going to be an odor he's because stinking. he has been dead for so long. And Jesus told his disciples earlier, he said, uh, Lazarus, your friend is sick. And he says, I'll get there eventually. And they said, well, why don't you go now? And then Martha comes out and says to him, Lord, if you'd been here, Lazarus would not have died. And he said, this is not for his death. It is for the glory of God. And so they wanted to, he wanted to let people know Lazarus is dead. Right. And I called him back, one who was in the absolute clutches of death. And I have power over death. Yep. And so I think that's why he waited until fourth day. And Father, I remember the reading, and you said, and Jesus wept. Mm -hmm. And he saw Lazarus dead. Mm -hmm. But he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. So why was he crying? Basically, I mean, you could say a lot of things, but the, the most, I think, profound is that Here's Christ about to go to Jerusalem on the following day, which is going to bring us into the events of his passion. One, I think he was confronting the reality of death like he never had before. This is Christ. We always think of Christ as the Son of God as if he, yes, we know he's a human being, but here, as a human being, Lazarus was his friend. And as a human being, he encounters the reality of death. There's Mary and Martha, they're weeping. And I think it was just the totality of here's the reality of death and, and seeing it in all of its, its, its horror, I think is why. Yeah. Another explanation may be that when he raises Lazarus, that's really what sets in motion the fact that the Jews are not going to let him live. Once, yeah. Yeah. Just like he was in the, in the garden, you know, praying and the, the, Sweat was coming like drops of blood. This is going to set it all in motion. So, um, oh, sorry. Yeah, let me go back to that for a second. Um, four is an earthly number. Look at a compass, there's four points. We often talk about the four winds, uh, the four corners of the world. Um, there's another four in creation. Four elements. With the, the world was thought to have four elements, right? What were they? Um, earth, earth, fire, wind, fire, and water. So four is an earthly number, okay? But it's a totality of what's created. All right. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> Let me give you one more. Then we're gonna get into multiples. What's ten? Ten Commandments, yeah. So you hear we have the Ten Commandments. Ten is another sort of totality. Look at your hands. Ten fingers, okay. There's, there's, there's a completeness to ten. Um, the Ten Virgins. There's a lot of examples of ten as another totality. And that leads us into some multiples. Um, or some, uh, some summations. Seven... It's perfection, so it's a full week, right? Sunday to Saturday, it's a full week, but it's also four plus three. So it's a completion of what is this mystical completion, which we get, but we don't, can't really put our hands on. We can't control it. 
with the four that we do get. We get north, south, east, and west. We get the four winds, the four corners. We get that. And you add it into this other uh, totality. And then you really have the totality of the uncreated with the creed. Um, oh, I didn't mention 12. What's 12 in the Bible? 12 apostles. 12 apostles. In the 12 Old Testament, tribes. the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's the number of the community. And we're going to see how these numbers come into play because we're going to see different multiples. We're going to see 24. We're going to have 144,000. Uh, we're going to see a lot of multiples that when you look at the number, like, well, that's an odd number. Why would that be? But if you understand the key basic numbers, and again, I'm just telling you what people and then would have understood. They would have understood. We, when we think of four today, we've heard of the four winds. We, we refer to the four corners of the earth, but we know they're not there. They would have thought there are four corners to the earth. They would have thought there are four elements. They would have looked at the periodic chart, you know. Well, they didn't realize it was round back then. Right, exactly. But they would have gotten four as, as the created world. Which way you were standing out in the middle of the world, which way should we go? You know, there's... Um, I'm sorry? So 12 is the community. In the Old Testament, it was the 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Testament... It's, it's the 12 apostles. Surprise. The uh, early founders didn't stop at 12 calendars. Yeah. They came in for religious freedom. Right. I never thought of that. That's true. And I don't know if 13 was unlucky back then, but these days it would have to be the 14th. We couldn't have a 13, right? <laughs> like the 13th floor. It doesn't exist. We'll go straight to the next. All right. Um, let's see. I think that's it for numbers. Any questions on the numbers? Okay. I like number 12. What's that? I like number you like the number 12? <laughs> All right. Flip back to Matthew 24 for a moment because I want you to see what's at the heart of the message of the book of Revelation. Um, I'm going to start at verse 9. And they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold but he who endures to the end shall be saved. I want you all to write that down if you're taking notes. Matthew 24, 13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So that's, that's the, if you want to call it the thesis of the book, that's our thesis. That's the thesis we're going to see and I want us to look for because that's the theme we'll tie all together. He who endures to the end will be saved. Have all the nations been established? What do you mean? There's two all nations and the number of nations grew right. over time. And we at that point, 
where there are no more nations. No it's, more it's, it's an interesting tribes. question because... You know, the Kurds don't have a nation. Right. They're a group of people. Right. And all those have been established. It's interesting because we live in a time when nations, we, we imposed an idea, we, I mean, as a race, in the last, let's say, 100 years. Um, the world always knew empires. It knew uh, federations of people. Um, this idea of a nation that was very specific boundaries that you now with maps and, of course, now with satellites even, you can draw boundaries. It's really created a lot of problems. I was sitting with some of our parishioners um, that are from Serbia. And in the last two months, the people of one area of that country, it's now its own sort of independent country within it, of Montenegro, they want to have their own country. So I don't know if you saw in the news, this, this poor bishop got beaten up because there's now a conflict between the Serbian Orthodox Church and the Church of Montenegro, which was a part of the Serbian Church, and now they want to be independent because Montenegro wants to be independent. But this idea of nations, uh, when really, if you look at the word in the original, um, often it's either the peoples, all the nation, all the peoples of the earth will be gathered, or sometimes when it says the nations, uh, the word is often the Gentiles, the non-Jews, everybody else besides the Jews. In Goyim. English, we get translated as nations. What's that? Goyim. Goyim. That's the, the Hebrew word for uh, those who are not Jewish. Yeah. But because of nations and our modern idea of nations, it's creating more and more problems, which a lot of people would say, oh, we'll see now what's happening because there's more wars and all this thing. That's the thing I'll mention, by the way. Relatively few things in the book of Revelation that we're going to read haven't already happened. Almost everything we're going to read about has already happened. Almost everything. The only thing that hasn't happened is the actual very end, which Revelation is going to show us when the world ends isn't really the most important question. Right? So people that are worried about, I don't want to be in the shower, I don't want to be at the movies, the world's going to end. What's the most important thing for any one person? whether or not the world ends. That's secondary when the world ends. What's most important? Yeah. When am I going to end? And more importantly, how am I going to end? So whether or not the world ends, that's not the message. A lot of people read this and are trying to predict. And every year, you'll see some pastor get up on the internet, and I'll get on YouTube and say, well, it's going to happen on November 11th, 2020, because I've read the Revelation. That doesn't matter. So what if that's going to happen then? Because between now and then, you might get hit by a car or a meteor or whatever. What's, what's important is when we end, and more important than that, how and what condition we're in. Were we, to go back to Matthew, were we ready? Were we watchful? And that's what Revelation is going to be about. So when we hear about all, a lot of stuff it's talking about, um, most of it was, we could say, even was fulfilled or was already even happening at the time of its writing. John didn't write a letter to these seven churches that they would have gone, well, too bad this isn't written for us because it's not going to happen until the 21st century. It was written to them. This is a message for them. And as we're going to see um, uh, in the way it's written, it's also written to us.
All right. We may not get into the book itself. Maybe we'll read one or two verses. Any question on the introduction? Because it's really, this is one of those books where getting the setting right is important to get the meaning right. Yes. When all this starts happening, as far as time, we don't know when, but does it all happen fast? Does it take a long time? Our, our perception of time, when all this starts occurring. The, the, you're going to see how this gets written. It's written as a process that was in play a long time ago, and now it's going to unfold. So what we're going to read about is it's almost like, um, you know, sometimes when people give a gift in a small box, they put it in a bigger box, they put it in a bigger box, and you're unwrapping, you know. It's sort of like that, only it's a little more specific, that you open up one box, and the thing that you open up, there are seven other boxes you got to get through, or the way it's written here, there's a scroll. And when you open up one seal of the scroll, then certain things happen before you get to the next seal. So there's sort of like cycles within cycles. So it's, it's all unfolding. How fast? Uh, I don't know. But the, the point would be that this is proceeding along a plan that God has put into place. And as part of the community, we're going to follow the same path. Would we have time to, I don't want to do this by myself. I want to be part of the community. Right. If you're thinking about it and you want to be prepared, wouldn't it be a good idea, like, come to church or yes. you're not alone? Yes. But more important in the deeper sense. Right. That you are prepared. But right. I guess I'm thinking about the physical part. Yeah. And, and what you're going to get in here is that you're never alone. Because it's going to look like um, you've been pulled out, and now as weak as you were under this big power of, of the government, now you've been pulled out alone, and now you're even weaker. And you're, you're isolated, you're alone. And Revelation is always going to say, this is what it looks like, this is what's going on. And we're never alone. We're going to see that, that the Spirit of God which is always the, the person of the Trinity who is the one who reaches out and connects us to God and to each other. And the spirit you're going to see from the, from the very beginning of, um, of, the, of that actual revelation. Well, I'll just, because I want to, I don't want to have a whole Bible study, not read the Bible. <laughs> We're going to read just the first few verses. No, no, questions are great. I'm glad we did it. And again, because if we don't get it understood from the beginning, it's sort of like a ship. When you start off on the wrong course, you're not going to get where you want to go. So these are all important things to cover. Let's just go over the first couple of verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. And what I said about literature meaning... There's several steps between the one who's sending the message and you as you receive it. So this revelation is about whom? It's about, well, specifically, 
Verse Jesus 1. Christ. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't forget that as we go through this. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. So we want to look through this and say, okay, if it's the uncovering of Jesus Christ, anything we ask that doesn't answer that question also, we're going to get wrong. Because what is this? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, to show his servants, us, and the people who written the book was written to, things which must shortly take place. And this is written 2,000 years ago. Things which must shortly take place. He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Now, which John is this? John the theologian, John the apostle, not John the Baptist. Okay. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. So in other words, the revelation of Jesus Christ from God sent by the angel to John John bears witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Um, we're going to come back to this verse. This is an important point I want to make as we go into next week, but we'll come back then and we just keep going. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. And we'll end with this. It is a blessing to read and to hear this prophecy. It's not a curse. It's not a scary story. It is a blessing. Blessed is he who reads those things and hears the words of the prophecy and keeps those things which are written in it. What does it mean to keep those things? Remember, and because the Bible's instruction, keep it in order to do the right thing. That's the key. Because the time is near. I think it's interesting what you said a few minutes ago that what's in this book, a lot has already happened. I'm Almost all. I'm thinking about Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just keep getting hit with all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. But we have so much hurricanes, earthquakes constantly that are going on. Mm -hmm. So it's all part of it. Mm -hmm. And when we're done with the book, we're going to go, well, of course there are. Of course there's wars going on. Of course there's famine. Of course there's trouble from oppressive governments. We're going to go, of course there is. But what we're going to hopefully see is that under that covering that looks like the powers that be, and in this time, who was the power to be at the time of, of the writing of, of Revelation? Rome. Rome. Uh, arguably the greatest power the world has ever seen. So that's the context, that's the power, but what we're going to see is Rome, in all of its power and splendor and glory, is a paper tiger. And who's going to conquer Rome? That little lamb with the mortal wound, the one that looked, the one who died, and yet there he is alive on the throne. That's going to be the message. All right. Thank you all. Thank you.